Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, etc., and welcome to episode 5 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a retro game I used to play back when I was younger, or maybe a modern game I've played recently. If this is your first time giving the Retro Wildlands a listen, I really appreciate you taking a chance on this little project of mine. And if you're a returning Wildlander, welcome back! We have plenty of seats around the fire for old and new friends alike, so grab yourself a seat and get comfy. On today's episode, I'm trying something a little different. So far, I've been making episodes around games that I've played before when I was younger, so I could talk about some of my memories that go with those games. When I was looking through my library of games deciding on what was going to be episode 5, my eyes fell on Castlevania for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Now many times over the years I'll look at that game and I'll just shake my head and move on. Nah, another time, I will say. Last week I finally said screw it, let's just give this one a go. I had no intention to play this game for the podcast, but once I put about 5 minutes into this game, it really got its hooks in me. I talk about it at the beginning of the podcast, but I used to listen to this game's soundtrack, and I absolutely loved it, even though I never played this game. The soundtrack was a big factor in what helped me complete this game too when I played it last week. It is really amazing, and finally listening to it while I was playing the game just cemented the experience for me. The experience overall was very solid, and I'm curious if there's those out there that have actually played this game, and had some of the same experience as I had, and maybe even some of the same frustrations I had too. And if you've never played this game before, I really hope this episode does the game some justice. I'm not the biggest lover of platforming games, but I really had a good time with this one and I can't wait to talk to you all about it. So that said, I'm not going to have any childhood memories or anything to sprinkle on top of this podcast Sunday this week, but I'm hoping it's still an entertaining show for you. Before we get into the Castlevania talk, I wanted to give you all a peek behind the scenes here in the Wildlands and let you know what it is that I'm working on and potentially what's coming up on future episodes. If you don't want to hear any of this and go right to the Castlevania talk, not a problem. Just head about 5-10 minutes up the road and you should get into the episode proper. (laughs) Now that I think about it, I said about 10 minutes last episode and the intro was actually 5, so my apologies to anyone who skipped the intro and went a little too far ahead still trying to figure this thing out. And that's a great segue to talk about one thing I am going to do sooner rather than later. I do plan to update my show descriptions with timestamps, and then I'm also going to add links to my social media as well. So that's a project going to be heading down the road as well. I'm really hoping that's going to be just one little thing that's going to improve the overall experience. Speaking of social media, to get those plugs taken care of, you can get a hold of me on Facebook if you search us out by looking up the Retro Wildlands, and we're also on Instagram and Twitter, at Retro Wildlands. If you follow me, I'll follow you back, and I'll like some of your photos and we can be pals. And aside from that, these are the best places you can get a hold of me, so if you wanted to reach out and chat or ask a question, shoot the breeze, just slip right into my DMs, as the kiddos would say. Speaking of, I asked some of our followers on Facebook if there were any games I should cover on the show. I have a list of games in my head for the foreseeable future, but if you have something you'd really like to hear on the show, and I can make a decent podcast out of it, I'd like to humor the ideas. Really, this is my project and I have a vision for it, but the Wildlands are a land we all occupy. So if we can make it work, then I'd say let's do it. Couple suggestions I got on the Facebook page include The Lion King, which was a platformer that popped up on the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo. I did play this once at my dad's house when I was a kid on the Sega Genesis, and I remember hating how hard this game was. 
but I am older and arguably more skilled now, so I was thinking about giving this game another go sometime in the future, so that one's on my radar. Uh, Toe Jam and Earl was another suggestion that came my way. It has been far too long since I played this one, so it is also on the list now. Far Cry 3 was suggested, and I absolutely love this suggestion. I've played all the Far Cry games up to 5 and 6, so I'm technically a little behind, but I've got a decent amount of them under the belt. Far Cry 3 really stuck out to me, though. I thought the story was fantastic, and Voss is one of my favorite villains ever. And that ending. No spoilers or anything, but that ending was one of the best in my opinion. Or, or at least the lead-up to the finale I thought was done really, really well. Star Fox for the Super Nintendo was suggested as well. This one was already on my list, and a look at Star Fox will be happening sooner rather than later. Wink! Aside from the revolutionary graphics and all that, I was absolutely smitten with this game when I was younger. I thought the gameplay was fun, the soundtrack was amazing, and I have some really good memories around this game. I will say though, I was not very good at this game, and I was too much of a wuss to try and play any of the harder difficulty levels, so I really want to dive back into this one and see if I can surpass my younger self. So what do you all think about these games? If you have some you'd like to have me consider covering, just shoot a message or a comment on our social media. The net of games I can play is pretty wide for the most part. Anything including the original NES up to the PlayStation 4, Xbox One era are pretty much on the table. Handhelds like the Game Boy Advance, PlayStation Portable, PlayStation Vita, or the Nintendo 3DS are also included as well. If I don't have the game, I may seek it out if I can. I'm already starting to recollect a bunch of games and build my collection of physical media back up again. The beautiful thing about the Retro Wildlands is that there are a ton of games to be had in its luscious fields. Some I've played, others I have not. The best part about exploring the Wildlands is discovering new things and revisiting some old things. Alright folks, I think that's all I have for that. Let's get into Castlevania for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Released in September 1986 when I was just two years old. Holy shit. <laughs> in this game, you are playing as Simon Belmont, a legendary vampire and demon hunter who has one goal and one goal only. Enter Dracula's castle and vanquish him once and for all. The opposition will be fierce and they won't stop until you are dead. I had a really good time with this one and I'm ready to share my thoughts and experiences. So grab your trusty demon slaying whip, boomerang cross, and a freshly prepared pork chop. Let's accompany Simon on his journey into the darkness. I wanted to start this episode off with a small confession. Nothing too earth-shattering, I don't think. On the last episode of the podcast where I talked about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles in Time on the Super Nintendo, I mentioned that I sometimes prefer listening to video game music and soundtracks over other kinds of music. I really think video game music can be just as entertaining as some mainstream music, if not more so depending on what it is. And of all the video game music, tunes from the original Nintendo Entertainment System are some of my favorites. 
They might be old 8-bit chiptunes from the 1980s, but some are really just masterpieces of music, and I'm sure it helps they can spark up that wonderful nostalgic feeling we all love. So what's my confession? I know the music from Castlevania like the back of my hand. Tracks like Vampire Killer and Walking on the Edge, but I've never actually played a single Castlevania game before. Not one. When I listen to video game music, Castlevania would find its way into the rotation on its own. Has anyone ever gone so far to find modern remixes of video game music? Because I have, and I follow a few bands on Spotify and a couple YouTubers who do nothing but make metal renditions of gaming music. It's through these avenues that I really got intimate with the Castlevania soundtrack and knew I wanted to play the game someday. And well, it's finally happened. 35 years after its North American release, I finally played and finished Castlevania for the NES. I was barely two years old when this game first appeared on store shelves. Holy shit, still blows my mind saying that out loud. I adore retro games and jumping in the Wayback Machine for some old school goodness, but I did not care for how old the process makes me feel. But it's okay, better late than never, right? And after my experience with this game, I'm eager to keep working through the Castlevania catalog. So how was my first outing, though? Well, if you're listening to the podcast, I'm assuming you're somewhat interested in my thoughts, so let's get to it. I'm sure my future self will mention this in the intro to the podcast when I record it, but I was just flipping through the old catalog of games when I finished up Turtles in Time, and Castlevania just caught my eye. It was at that point I heard that little voice whisper in my ear, Just fucking play it already. Anytime the voices speak to me, I generally listen, so I figured, what the hell, let's finally see what this game is all about. I think it took all of five minutes for this game to get its hooks in me. The gameplay was pretty solid, and then finally being able to hear the soundtrack in its original glory just sealed it for me. I was in, I was vested, and we were going to go on this journey. I was really having fun cracking my whip at enemies, smashing candelabras for items, and just being a badass demon slayer. Then about halfway through, the game got hard, and it got hard fast. It dawned on me that the NES era of games can be pretty humbling, and I needed to take a step back and reassess a little bit. Eventually, I did end up beating the game, and I saw the credits roll. I played through it one more time and felt pretty satisfied by the end of my second run. This podcast is going to recap this game, what it's all about, and chronicle my journey to defeat the forces of evil while I add some seasoning that is my personal opinion to the Castlevania dish. One thing I do want to clear up right now, I do not consider myself a skillful gamer, not by a long shot. I mean, I have my moments, but really, I'm just an old man who likes to play games and listen to all the bleep bloops. While I played the game as much as I could El Naturel, It was about when I hit stage 14 or 15 when I really started to hit a roadblock. I did want to complete the game all the way through for the podcast, and I was just getting my ass beat thoroughly, mostly by sets of stairs and other annoying things, so I did use save states near the end of the game to save myself some time. I just want to be transparent. I'd like to go back and finish the game without using save states, and with the game's unlimited continue feature, I'm sure that I could if I just put the time into it. I just didn't want to risk not beating it before the recording deadline, that's that's all. Alright, with that out of the way, let's start at the beginning and get everybody on board. What is this game? Castlevania is a platformer that I consider to be a pretty unique one when you put it against the other platformers of the era. 
somewhat because of how the game plays, but more so because of the subject matter. You play as Simon Belmont, and your mission is to ascend the castle of Count Dracula and slay him. All sorts of evil creatures stand between you and the evil count. Reanimated skeletons, zombies, vampire bats, snake-headed creatures, reptilian mermen, evil black knights, and more haunt the various halls and locations of the castle, and they all have the same objective. Kill you and dance on top of your bloody corpse. Okay, maybe that's a bit much, but they are trying to stop you. Simon Belmont comes from a long line of legendary vampire hunters, and it has fallen upon him to take on this righteous quest. He brings with him a holy whip that he inherited from his father, and it will be the main tool the player will use to beat back the forces of evil in the castle. It's a straightforward premise, and the flow of the game is just as straightforward. As you progress through the stages, Simon moves deeper into the castle and will eventually wind up in Dracula's chambers for the final showdown. Now before we jump into the gameplay a little bit, I wanted to talk about the story a little bit, or at least the story as I understand it. Now, we're talking about a game that was released in the 1980s for the Nintendo Entertainment System. In my own experience, not many of the games I've played back in the day had very rich and robust stories. Most gamers, though, probably have heard of Castlevania because there's been a pretty robust library of games that have cropped up in the franchise over the years. It even spawned an animated series that's available on Netflix now as I record this. The story stuff, though, that I talked about earlier, I didn't learn any of that backstory in the actual game itself. If there was a scene somewhere that explained any of this in the game, I missed it somehow. What I did find about Simon and the clan of Belmonts, I found on the interwebs. I remember when I was younger, there were times the instruction manuals in some of the games that I had sometimes had a bunch of story background and other tidbits about the game. Really quick, did anybody else carry around those old instruction manuals with them when they were little? There were some games where I'd take the manuals with me on car trips to read, and sometimes I would even take them with me to school and read them on lunch or show them off to my friends. Not only did some of them have small story sections or background about the game itself, sometimes they would go into detail about the enemies you'd find or the power-ups that you'd find along the way too. If I couldn't play the game, reading the manual was the next best thing for me. Now, I never owned Castlevania back in the day, so I never held the actual instruction manual in my hand, but this is 2022, and the internet contains all of mankind's accumulated knowledge and much of our records. So, of course, I was able to find a copy online. All of that to say, even the manual didn't give much depth into the story. I do love how they lay out the story, though. Allow me to read from the Castlevania instruction manual for funsies. Ahem. Good evening. Yes, it actually spells it out that way. Step into the shadows of the deadliest dwelling of Earth. You've arrived at Castlevania, and you're here on business to destroy forever the curse of the evil count. Unfortunately, everybody's home this evening. Bats, ghosts, every creature you can imagine. You'll find them all over the place if they don't find you first because you've got to get through six monstrous floors before you even meet up with the master of the house. Your magic whip will help, and you'll probably find a weapon or two along the way. But once you make it to the tower, you can count on a duel to the death. The Count has waited 100 years for a rematch. He's ready. Are you? <laughs> that is so cool, right? That's the sort of thing that would have me excited as a kid if I owned this game, and it's sort of exciting to read it now. 
it's the perfect setup for a game like this. Now what I want to draw attention to is the line, The Count has waited 100 years for a rematch. Was that just flavor text to make the intro more dramatic, or was there something more to that? So I took to the internet. Since Castlevania for the Nintendo Entertainment System was the first in a long line of the series as it is today, there obviously wasn't a game to explain what happened 100 years ago. Fast forward to 1991, Nintendo released Castlevania II, Belmont's Revenge, for the Game Boy, and it served to explain what happened 100 years prior. The deeper I dove into the timeline of games, I was pleasantly surprised to see that each game in the series can be put in a timeline of when events actually happened pretty easily. Sometimes when I think of a game series that has really convoluted timelines and events to keep track of, I think of the Legend of Zelda series and even the Metal Gear Solid series. Multiple games which stories take place over multiple timelines over multiple releases. It, it can be a bit much. Castlevania seems to be pretty tame in that regard. The issue, though, is that the games didn't release in order of that timeline. Castlevania for the Nintendo actually has five games that released after it that events taking place before it happened in the game world. There are 16 mainline Castlevania games, if I'm counting them all right, and they've all been released on multiple systems to boot. Some on the NES, some on the Game Boy, PlayStation 2, Original Xbox, Game Boy Advance, PlayStation Portable, Nintendo DS, and the list just keeps going on. It's a crazy sort of mess. Now, I feel like I'm falling further into the weeds here, so I don't want to go any farther with the game story. For Castlevania, it's a simple premise, like I said. Since it's the first and only Castlevania I've ever played, it's been a great starting point. I'm genuinely curious as to what the rest of the story holds, and I'm really curious to play the other games. The more I look into them as I prepare notes for this episode, I can see why so many people love this series. It gets pretty deep. I will definitely be filling out my gaming resume with more games in the Castlevania universe, that is a promise. For now, let's circle back to the OG, the first one in the bunch, and my experiences with it. When I first booted up the game and hit the start button, I was met with a quick scene where Simon strolls up to the castle gates and turns to pass through them. Given the Nintendo's graphic capabilities, this 6 or 7 second scene was beautiful looking. In the night sky, you can see the castle in the distance and even a couple of the castle's towers. Dracula is undoubtedly in the tallest one. A couple of bats are flying in the sky, and a dark cloud is moving over the crescent moon. It was awesome to look at. Then the game puts you in control, and it's on you to walk through the courtyard and enter the castle proper. Now, one thing we all know about old games is they never really had in-game tutorials way back when. If you want to know how to play a game, you need to grab that instruction manual and get to reading up on the controls. Like I mentioned, I never had access to the original instruction manual, so when I booted up the game for the first time, I was truly going in blind. This section of the game, when you're walking through the courtyard, actually served as a pretty damn good tutorial level in its own right. First thing you're going to likely do is test out your whip. In front of you stand some tall cauldron looking things with some fire coming out the top. I have no idea what these things are called, by the way. I just spent a couple minutes of my life, I'll never get back, trying to Google what the hell these things are, so I'm going to go with cauldrons. If you crack your whip into them, they'll break open and various items are going to drop out. First, a large heart. On the top right-hand side of your screen, you'll have a count of how many hearts you currently hold, and the large one counts for five at once. Now, 
You probably noticed your dinky little whip when you swung it for the first time. When you crack open the second cauldron, a morning star falls out, and if you pick that up and swing your whip again, you'll notice your thin little whip is now this thick morning star. The next cauldron is another morning star, and this makes your weapon even longer. The cauldron after that is yet another large heart, and finally you'll come across your first throwable sub-weapon, the dagger. After this, you enter the castle. So while it isn't a robust tutorial, really, I learned most of what I needed to know in that first couple moments in the courtyard. The whip can break open things and you'll be rewarded with items, specifically hearts and subweapons. Gather whip icons to make your weapon more powerful and longer, and the game gave me an idea of how the whip works and how much time it takes to swing. So perfect! I am now a fully certified demon hunter, let's go get after it. Castlevania contains six blocks of stages. Each block contains three stages within it, for a total of 18 stages all told. Each block represents a part of the castle, and at the end of each block, you're met with a boss monster that must be defeated to move into the next area. In typical game fashion, the earlier stages are the easier parts of the game, designed to get you used to the game and its mechanics. But really, the goal is just to get from one stage to the other, and each stage will be full of enemies trying to stop you. Enemies don't completely vanish after you vanquish them, though. They'll typically keep coming at you until you leave the area. In earlier stages, they aren't too overwhelming, but as you get deeper into the castle, things can become a little hectic. You're going to have to use all the tools at your disposal and navigate the dark halls and survive long enough to make it to that final encounter. So what does a demon hunter like Simon have to fight the forces of evil? Let's dive a little bit into his toolkit a bit. So he's got the whip, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Pressing B on the control pad has Simon swing the whip right out in front of him. You have the ability to jump, and you can even swing the whip while you're in the air, which is pretty cool. Most enemies will die in one hit, but others might take a couple whip smacks before dying. You are limited to just whipping straight forward in the direction you're facing, however. And I'm sure this limitation is probably expanded upon or rectified in other games of the series, but I would really have loved to be able to swing my whip up or diagonally, or even down as I was in the air. Either way, you learn to work with it. Obviously, you want to find whip power-ups that make your weapon longer and more powerful. This weapon, though, will be your bread-and-butter weapon. Now, what makes the game much deeper is you can change how you play in some ways based on the sub-weapons that you're going to come across. The instruction manual just calls these things weapons, so if sub-weapon isn't the right term, I'm already committed to that term and I'm not changing it, so we're going to run with sub-weapon. Now, each sub-weapon has its own use and requires a heart to use. If you don't have any hearts in your inventory, you can't use your sub-weapons, so it behooves you to seek them out. You can find hearts hidden in candelabras hung on the walls, and some enemies may even drop them too. Pressing up and the B button together will activate your sub-weapon. The first one you find in the very beginning is the dagger, like I said. It flies straight out in front of you, and it flies pretty quickly, too. It's a little on the weaker side, but it's great to take out enemies at a distance before they get close to you. I will say it's probably the weapon I use the least, though. I didn't find many scenarios where I was like, Oh my god, I am so glad I have this as my sub-weapon. The best way I can describe it would be it's the it's the better-than-nothing weapon. I will say it was great for those skeleton enemies you'll come across that try to keep their distance from you, but beyond that, it didn't have much use. Next on the list was the axe. Now, this beast is pretty strong. 
when you throw it, it will fly up and down in an arch. Now the cool thing is, if it hits something, the axe won't disappear. It'll just keep going, so you could manage to hit multiple enemies with it if you line them up just right. This weapon was alright overall, and good for most boss encounters, but I never found it to be my absolute favorite. I definitely liked it better than the dagger, though. It's great for enemies above or below you, but in most cases, if an enemy isn't directly in front of you, they aren't an immediate threat. Is that the right mentality? Eh, it's debatable, I know, but that was my experience. Still, the axe was much more preferred over the dagger, like I said. Then there's the fire bottle. I like to think of this as more of a holy Malatov cocktail. When you toss it out in front of you, it travels a little ways and then cracks open on the ground, and it's covered in fire for a few seconds. This sub-weapon had some interesting uses I discovered. First, I never tried to toss it directly on an enemy. I tossed it in front of the enemy heading towards me, and they'd walk into the fire and then scream and wither and die. Now, depending on how long the fire lasted, I could snag multiple enemies this way. Another thing I discovered with the bottle is, while it's in the air heading towards the ground, it can do damage to an enemy, and it won't break in the air either. I didn't try to toss the bottle directly at an enemy, but sometimes, if I saw the opportunity, it worked out rather well. I could toss the bottle off a ledge to an area below to hit enemies in flight, and then kill enemies on the ground right after that. It's, it's really hard to describe, but it's really cool. Now, the enemies in the later game seemed to get much faster, and I found myself not using the firebomb as much, but again, that was me and my experience. Now, the boomerang cross was my favorite of all the sub-weapons when I found it, and when I did find it, I rarely picked up anything else. It would fly out in front of you and hit anything in its path. With the exception of the Axemen and the Black Knight enemies, the boomerang would travel through enemies as it damaged them, and then travel back to Simon. So in this way, the sub-weapon could actually hit an enemy twice, in one use. Like the other sub-weapons, you can toss it in the air, too. It was really powerful, I thought. I think my favorite trick would be to toss the cross out in front of me, and then jump over it as it heads back to me so I could knock out enemies behind me if there were any. Plus, if you kill so many enemies in one use of your sub-weapon, you'll get bonus points added to your score. It was great, I can't think of a situation where I wish I didn't have this weapon. Now the last weapon was the pocket watch. It's probably my second favorite weapon. When you use it, all enemy movement stops and it essentially freezes everything on screen for a couple seconds. It even freezes enemy fireballs heading your direction too, so you can use that as an opportunity to whip those right out of the sky. This weapon was perfect to navigate out of a sticky situation by eliminating the opposition, jumping past them, or in some cases, keeping a harder enemy that needed more than one hit stuck in place so you could beat on them senseless without risk of injury. The watch did have two hefty drawbacks, though. First, each use costs five hearts instead of one, so it would bleed through your heart reserves pretty quickly if you relied on it too much. And second, boss monsters are not affected by it. Well, they are, but they stay frozen on screen for barely half a second, so it's really not worth using. At least a couple bosses that I tried to use this thing on. There are other items that you can use that will aid you on your quest as well. Scattered around or dropped by enemies, you can find things like bags of money that will increase your score, a blue cross that will clear the screen of all enemies, an invisibility potion that renders you invulnerable to enemy attacks for a little bit, double and triple shot items that allow you to toss sub-weapons either twice or three times in rapid succession, 
And finally, the coveted pork chop, which refills some of your lost health. Ah, the pork chop. I love that food is the go-to health item in video games. Have a gaping wound in your midsection and you're losing blood at a ridiculous rate? Just shove some food in your stomach and that'll fix you right up. The best part about the pork chop is that it doesn't drop from enemies or anything like that. They're just hidden in the walls and platforms of the castle, and you have to use your whip to break them open and reveal the tasty treat. Oh, and a quick shout-out to the invisibility potion. I really appreciated this showing up when it never really helped me. Has this happened to anybody else? You'd be surrounded by enemies, taking them down one at a time, and the very last one, the very last one, drops the potion, and it's like, how the hell does this help me now? I mean, it's not the worst thing, it's just a little annoying. I just can't think of a single time I got one of these potions and it legit helped me out of a jam or anything. Probably the best weapons you can find were those double and triple shot items. You pick them up and carry those things with you. You can't just automatically spam your sub-weapons by default. If you throw one, you have to wait a second or two before the game lets you throw a follow-up one. When you have the double shot, for instance, though, you can toss a sub-weapon two times in rapid succession if you smash your buttons fast enough. The triple shot lets you throw a weapon three times before you have to wait for the cooldown to wear off. When I was able to combine these with my trusty boomerang, it made short work of almost anything that stood in my way, even some of the harder bosses, so as long as I had enough stockpiled hearts to fuel my rampage. And that reminds me too, when items drop on the ground, they do not stick around for very long. It felt like after three solid seconds, items on the ground would disappear, so if you wanted something, you would have to go back and collect it really fast. I will say though, if you find a sub-weapon that you don't want, you can just wait a couple seconds and it will vanish and you won't have to worry about accidentally picking it up, so that's nice. Alright, so those are the items in our Demon Slaying Toolkit. Let's talk about all of the horrific monsters, ghouls, and creatures that will stand in your way in Castlevania. I really like the enemies in this game for what they are in terms of their presentation. A lot of classic horror movie and horror novel tropes are definitely present here. You've got your classic undead creatures, mythical beasts, monsters, and demons. None of these creatures are inherently scary graphically, and there's no presence of blood and gore, but sometimes I wonder if my parents would have ever really let me play this game, actually. If you don't know what it looks like off the top of your head, you should take a moment and Google the Castlevania box art for the original Nintendo. While the artwork is pretty stunning, it could be considered a little creepy and maybe a little adult. Well, my mom might have, I'll say that. I'm kidding, mom. I hurt you. On the box art is a muscular Simon Belmont, and he's standing in the foreground looking up at Dracula's castle, while the face of Dracula himself can be seen in the upper left, his sharp fangs glistening and blood dripping off of them. It's the perfect aesthetic, and the enemies you fight fit perfectly into this world the developers have tried to create here. And on that note, I will say, the enemy variety in this game is pretty decent, I think. Like most games, you get the easier enemies when you start. You have your classic zombies that just walk right up towards you, and they can be killed in one hit. Black leopards make a brief appearance early on, too. They're pretty fast, and once you get close to where they're lying, they'll jump up and head right towards you. Like you'll find with most of the faster enemies in the game, you'll have to take into account that small hiccup of time it takes Simon to pull his whip back before he whips it forward. So if a fast-moving enemy like the leopard is already on you and you haven't hit the attack button yet, expect to get some leopard teeth sunk into your leg. Otherwise, though, the leopard himself is a fairly easy enemy to deal with. 
Now, there are a decent amount of flying enemies in this game as well. Ravens will fly at you in order to peck your eyeballs out of your skull, but what makes these ravens more challenging is that they aren't your typical flying enemy that just beelines towards you. They'll move to you, and then they'll stop by landing on a part of the stage. Then they'll take off again and head towards you a little bit more, and then maybe perch again. Sometimes they perch up high, sometimes they perch below you so you can't always get to them. Often you'll have to wait until they're on a collision course with your faceplate and time your whip just right. Which isn't too bad if you're patient, but mix it in with other enemy types and even those guys can become a decent threat. Especially when you're near a hole in the ground. More on why that's a bad time later. Now another flying enemy to watch out for are the mini Medusa heads that start to appear around stage 4 and are probably my second least favorite enemy type because they suck. <laughs> now they look like they sound. Imagine the head of Medusa, you know, with the snakes and shit on top. They fly in from either side of the screen and move across the screen in a wave sort of pattern. And what I mean is they start low and go high, then low, then high, then low, on and on and on. They come in at a decent speed too, so for me, it was hard to gauge when they'd be in range to attack, and other times I had a hard time timing a jump over them or timing a duck to watch them sail over top of me. In later stages, I'm pretty sure their speed increases, and then they like to show up with other enemies more often, so that's just peachy keen. There's a few humanoid-type enemies, too. You have your classic-looking skeletons, and there are two types. Usually in most other games that I've played, skeletons are pretty low-level, no-brained enemies. But skeletons in this game are actually pretty smart. The regular-looking ones don't come right at you. They'll actually make a conscious effort to go back away from you and chuck bones at you from a distance. Even worse, if they're above you or below you, the bones they toss will go through the floor so they can hit you when they're not on a level playing field with you. Now the bones themselves aren't the biggest threats, and you can actually dodge them fairly easily, and you can even swat them out of the air with a well-timed whip strike or a sub-weapon. However, the red skeletons, these guys are a different kind of a pain. These are the type that fall apart when you hit them, but then they rebuild themselves after a second or two, so they don't really truly die. They don't toss bones or anything at you, so that's a plus, but you technically can't kill them. At least I've never found a way to permanently kill them. If there's a way to permanently kill these guys, I would love to know that. When they do fall apart, the bone pile they make is so small that sometimes I would lose it in the chaos of battle if there were other baddies around. Then it would pop back up when I totally forgot about it and more than likely damage me. Those sneaky bastards. The two other humanoid enemies you face are Black Knights and the Axemen. Black Knights are just tall brick shithouses that walk towards you and damage you when they touch you. They can take multiple hits from your whip or sub-weapons before they go down, so they can just tromp all over you if you don't kill them fast enough. The Axemen are more cunning and dangerous. These big guys can absorb a pretty big amount of damage, but what makes them so hard to deal with is they often back away from you, and then while they're doing that, they toss boomerang axes at you. You have to dodge or whip their axes down while you close the distance. Now depending on the area, they can lead you towards more enemies on screen, making the play area much more hectic and dangerous for you too. There's this one long hallway I remember where you work your way to the left, and several axemen are just slowly backing away from you and chucking their axes at you, while those little mini Medusa heads are buzzing and flying all around you from behind. It was probably the second hardest area of the game for me, and I'm assuming those of you that have played this game remember this specific part, because I sure as hell will never forget it. 
Now, this last enemy type I want to talk about is by far my least favorite. They're called hunchbacks in the instruction manual, but the way their animations are on screen, they look like little monkeys that are just humping the air. So henceforth, they shall be dubbed Humper Monkeys. Seriously, go find a YouTube video and look them up if you've never seen these things before. It's actually kind of funny. I mean, it's probably bad that this is where my mind goes right off the bat, and if I've ruined this enemy type for longtime fans of the series, you have my sincerest apologies. Okay, so the Humper Monkeys, like I said, are my least favorite. They'll jump in your general direction, and if you don't kill them when they first land, they'll scurry along the ground pretty quick and ram right into you, and they are pretty fast. They are especially more dangerous in a Humper Monkey pack. Initially, you come across them, and they tend to be on a higher plane than you. Once they jump down, they're at their most vulnerable. If you can stop and whip them dead before they start moving towards you, you're golden. Another encounter that sticks out to me is a long outdoors section where these big hawks are flying in from opposite ends of the screen and they drop humper monkeys on the ground like bombs. Same thing, if you can nail them when they first hit the ground, you're good. But if too many of them get on the ground, you're quickly going to be overwhelmed and you can kiss a large chunk of your health or even your life goodbye. In the second to last stage of the game, Eagles drop humper monkeys in this clock tower area, and they're even more dangerous here. The ground in this area is very uneven by default, so you'd think you'd be safe if you can just get to a higher or a lower plane and stay away from the humper monkeys, but that's what you get for thinking because you're dead wrong. The humper monkeys can actually climb up from the bottom of the stage to the top and vice versa. Nowhere is safe from them. It's the final push before Dracula, and it can be downright rage-inducing. I did feel a pretty big swelling of accomplishment when I did make it past, I'll be honest, but I considered calling this game quits right after failing this section so much. I mentioned it earlier, I used save states, but I swear I tried my best not to. This area, though, I just couldn't stomach dying over and over again and having to restart the whole block again. Make fun of me all you want, I do not care at this point. Okay, so we've spent however much time talking about your weapons and abilities, and we talked about a decent chunk of the enemies that you'll be facing along the way. So let's talk about the gameplay itself. Now, I thought about getting into some detail about the boss monsters that you're going to face along the way, but they're all unique in their own right, but none of them really stood out to me worth talking about them in general, and I figured, eh, go play the game and just experience the bosses for yourself. I do like the bosses for what they are in terms of their presentation again, they're based on those mythological creatures, horror tropes, things like that. So I am going to skip talking about the bosses. So if I just disappointed you, again, my apologies. It's two apologies in one episode. I, I, I am on a roll. <laughs> so now speaking of the gameplay, I find it kind of hard to review old retro games sometimes depending on what they are. I'll either be overly critical of the game, or I'll give it way too much of a pass since I want to take into account that the game dropped very early on, and on very old, old hardware. So keep in mind, I'm trying to toe that line, so if I say something that doesn't quite line up with your thoughts on this game, consider this a disclaimer. I'm not going to apologize for a third time in this podcast though, so disclaimer, I like that word. So the gameplay. It's pretty solid, but I would have to say there are a couple things about the gameplay that are not so solid. Some people consider these things character flaws, others consider them bad game design. I'm trying to look at this game like I would when it was released all those years ago, so I'm more in the character flaw category than I am the bad game design category. 
That said, the overall experience, while pretty fun, does feel a little archaic. The things Castlevania does well, it does do well. Combat is pretty okay. I mentioned it a while back, but it would have been nice to be able to whip straight up or diagonally instead of just straight out in front of you. Not the worst thing ever, I got used to it pretty quick, and the right sub-weapon kind of filled in the gaps when I needed them to be. Now the jumping. The jumping was really hard to get used to, and after two complete playthroughs, I'm still not used to it. Really quick, just to put it out there, I don't play a ton of platforming games. I didn't when I was younger, outside of the several Mario games and all that, and I really don't now. But one thing that's pretty consistent in most platforming games that I have played is that you're able to alter your flight path when you're in the air. So let's say you jump straight up. While you're in the air, you can use the directional button to move around a little bit and kind of alter where you're going to land. Or let's say you jump to the right, but you need to make an abrupt course correction to the left. Most games give you the ability to move a little bit to the left in the air. It's great if, say, you jump a platform and you need to walk yourself back a little bit in the air because you're about to overshoot it. Or if you time a jump over an enemy and screw that up because they're moving faster than you thought, you can alter your trajectory and try to avoid landing on it and taking damage. I think the best games that I've personally played that did this exceptionally well were Contra and Super C on the original Nintendo. The jumping controls were extremely tight. I am talking tighter than a duck's butthole. In Castlevania, that is not the case at all. When you jump, you are committed to your current trajectory, so you better hope like hell you time that jump right. It was very unforgiving and really added to the difficulty. I mean, I'm sure it might not be that bad for some, especially if you didn't get used to jumping in games like Contra like I did. Many times I'd jump in this game and use my directional button to try to move in the air, and even though nothing ever happened, I kept still doing it. I just couldn't break the habit. Another thing about the gameplay we have to talk about. When you get hit by an enemy in this game, the knockback is fucking ridiculous. There is no other way to describe it. When you get hit, you lose control of Simon for a hot second, and he flies backwards several feet before landing on the ground and you get control back. This game has a decent amount of holes and pitfalls scattered about. You will, and I guarantee you will, get hit by an enemy either over or by a pit, and that knockback will send you into that pit, and you will die a miserable death, all while you slowly crush your controller in your hands. Oh, was it frustrating. And I'm sure somebody listening to this show has tried to jump a gap on their last life, maybe even with a full health bar, and you got hit by something, and then you get to watch yourself spiral down into that hole, and then you see that game over screen. Oh my gosh. Now, I do want to step back just a little bit. This goes back to that character flaw thing. After a while, I accepted the fact that this wasn't a bad game design choice or anything. It was just part of the gameplay, and I needed to get used to the notion that knockback is just part of what's going to happen, and it's part of the gameplay mechanics. Eventually, I just looked at it through the lens of, it is what it is. It certainly frustrated me when knockback would send me off a ledge, but sounds bad to say, but I kind of got used to it. And get used to it you must, because it will happen until you start improving as a player. The fact that the game gives you unlimited continues is pretty awesome in that regard, and I appreciated it. You did have your accumulated score reset every time you did have to pony up a continue, but that never really bothered me personally. 
I was never one of those people that chased a high score, especially as an only child when I only ever just competed with myself. And dying a lot was never really a bad thing. I mean, I got used to it. But one of the things that kept me coming back, though, was that fantastic soundtrack. For 1980s chiptunes, Castlevania's soundtrack was one of the best, and it really helped me get through the whole idea that I was going to be dying repeatedly and replaying some stages over and over again. Couple more gripes I wanted to get off my chest about the gameplay before we start to wrap this puppy up. Let's talk about stairs. You're going to come across a ton of stairs that will take you up to higher levels and lower levels. Getting Simon to go up and down the stairs requires you to press up and down on the directional pad respectively. Once Simon is on the stairs, he's locked onto them and will only move up and down while you're on them. He can't jump up at all, so to get off the stairs you have to go up completely or down completely. It's pretty frustrating, but that's not the worst part. The worst part is when you're jumping around and you go to move to a set of stairs expecting to automatically attach yourself to them because that's how most platformers I played handled stairs. It's not the worst thing when the stairs go up. You just walk back, press the up button, and up the stairs you go if you need to engage with the stairs. If it's a set of stairs going down and you don't press the down button to attach yourself to the stairs, you're going to fall straight down. And if the stairs go off screen to a level below, you don't fall to the level below and continue your demon slaying. You will die. And you will die instantly. I think I got killed more by a set of stairs than any other enemy in this game. Now is this a character flaw as well? Maybe. But it doesn't change the fact that a change in the control scheme could have probably fixed this problem right up. Oh, and speaking of the stairs... When you use a sub-weapon, you have to press up on the directional pad and hit the B button to use it. If you're anywhere close to a set of stairs going up, as soon as you try and use your sub-weapon, you're all of a sudden going to be climbing stairs, and your sub-weapon stays in your pocket. I had a hard time getting used to that. I tried my best to just avoid stairs whenever possible when enemies were around. So all told, though... The gameplay still is pretty solid throughout. I just wanted to make it a point to capture some of my complaints just to see if anybody else out there felt the same way I did or had the same experience as I did. But through and through, Castlevania plays just fine. You move at a decent speed, combat is fun, and the game is hard in a good way for those looking for an old school retro challenge. I didn't find myself dying too many times due to cheap deaths or anything like that. Most of the time, I just needed to pay better attention or just get a little better as a player. But when there's a bunch of eagles flying around, dropping a ton of humper monkeys all over the place, you're bound to die, and that's just something you're going to have to be okay with. When you put this aside, though, Castlevania is a game I think all retro gamers should play if they can. It's a fun journey, and every time I played it, I got just that much better and made it just that much further than the last time. I really felt like a badass demon slayer, and I felt more badass when I was juggling beating the shit out of demons with my whip and using a well-timed sub-weapon to even the playing field. When the credits finally rolled, I felt genuinely fulfilled, and I'm very eager to see what else the Castlevania series has to offer.
And that, as they say, is that. This has been episode five of the Retro Wildlands, and I really appreciate you hanging out with me today and letting me talk your ear off about Castlevania. There are a ton of gaming podcasts that probably do this a hell of a lot better, but I'm glad you gave this small timer a chance, so thank you again, truly. If you like the show and want to support the Retro Wildlands, please consider submitting a good review through your podcasting service of choice. Or, better yet, spread the word to your friends, your co-workers, or that random stranger you sit next to on the bus. You can always reach out to me on social media if you want to chat or leave any feedback. You can reach us on Facebook by searching The Retro Wildlands, and, and I'm also hanging out on Instagram and Twitter, at Retro Wildlands. I'm still having an absolute blast building up our library of content, and I'm learning a lot as I go, and I have no plans to hang this project up anytime soon. Talking to you nerds has been very therapeutic, and the show is giving me a fantastic reason to go back through my old backlog of games and start knocking some of that out, so wins all around. So what's coming up next? Like I said at the end of the show, I am eager to dive into the Castlevania series now and see what other gems are lurking out there, so they may pop up down the road at some point. As far as the immediate future goes, we're going to be heading back to the Super Nintendo next week to talk about a coveted childhood favorite of mine. It's a game that debuted the Super FX graphics chip, which helped the game showcase some sweet-ass polygon rendering and one-of-a-kind visuals. A revolutionary on-rails space-age shooter where you and your pals are tasked with bringing down the diabolical Andros, 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 whatever, and save the Lilat system. I, of course, am talking about Star Fox, so be sure to join us next Thursday. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. 